Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that customer value is the reason your customer exists, but that's where it starts to get hard. Today, I am thrilled to have David Buchanan, who is president of Voith Paper here in the U.S. David, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you having me on. So Voith Paper, machines to servicing them, engineering them, selling upgrading components, uh, and so forth. Is that correct? Yep. We refer to us as a full line supplier. All right. In the paper industry. Correct. And, you know, the, the paper industry is not exactly a high growth industry, is it? Well, it depends, I guess, on how you look at it. If you look at it in a global perspective, for sure, it's a, it's a growing industry. If you look at it segmented into its particular parts. There are parts that are definitely growing and developing. You know, one example would be the corrugated box business driven by gross domestic product and, and e-commerce. Uh, we've seen quite a bit of growth in that marketplace over the last few years. Um, if you look at the printing and writing segment of the market, um, magazines, newspapers, et cetera, that's been the declining part of the business. So if you Merge that all together, yeah, maybe you could say not so attractive, but certain segments of it are certainly are developing in a positive manner. Yeah, and a uh, little tongue in cheek, the tissue market uh, had a huge spike in March of 2000, February, March of 2020, and then probably had a valley. And is has that stabilized now? I would say yes, stabilized. I mean, the peak came in one part of the tissue market, and that was the consumer market, as we know. Yeah. The away the away from home market took uh, equally, I would say, as big a hit as people work from the home office, and you know, restaurants and office buildings weren't having to refurbish or replenish their supply of uh, of products that are used there, like bathroom towels and tissue. Uh, so yeah, we saw the the peak come. That peak is now gone out and uh, there is a, uh, I believe, a surplus of consumer products available now and uh, the tissue companies are trying to figure out next steps, how to even out the marketplace as people return to work away from home will improve a little bit and the consumer market is uh, fairly flat. So there it is, everybody. As soon as you peel back the first layer of the onion, uh, there's a lot of complexity, a lot to learn, a lot to know, uh, which is why we have people in the world like David and why we have companies in the world like Voight. Um, tell us a little bit about Voight and how you differentiate yourself um, for your customers. So if you'll give me a couple of minutes, I'll maybe give you a little bit of background on Voight as a company itself. Um, 154-year-old privately held company from a small village in the south of Germany called Heidenheim. And it started uh, with the Voith, Mr. Voith, I guess would be the way to put it, uh, designing uh, grinding wheels for the production of pulp to manufacture paper. 
and has since, you know, uh, built up into the multi-dimensional company that it is today, supplying industries like pulp and paper, like hydroelectricity, like transportation, um, and other essential industries. So I think uh, earlier this week we reduced, uh, released, excuse me, our earnings for last year, and with is around a five billion uh, euro company from a top line standpoint. In the pulp and paper industry, you know, Voith works off of three uh, distinct strategies, and that's uh, full line supplier, that's efficiency, and that's sustainability. And I think they're all equally important, regardless of what order you put them in. So full liner to try to describe that, it's essentially we supply everything to the customer from the stock preparation through the winder and all of the products that they need on the paper machine as well in order to produce paper. So fabrics, rolls, wear parts, consumables, up and down the paper making line. So the customer can buy from us a complete solution. He can depend on us without having to have multiple interfaces to deliver the, the desired outcome from, from that purchase. Efficiency, now obviously we work diligently to make things faster, smarter, better, at less cost. Um, and uh, we, we work a lot on bringing efficient solutions to our customers. And then you have sustainability, which today is taking on a whole new uh, level of importance across the globe. Water consumption, electricity consumption, carbon neutrality, those are the, the topics. And uh, all of our equipment uh, today is positioned quite well in, in almost every area of sustainability to give the customers their, their desired end result. Yeah, I've seen, you know, I, I've seen some releases and press releases on water consumption, reduction in water consumption. And uh, paper mills use a huge amount of water. And that's becoming a big deal or has always been a big deal, but is getting bigger and bigger as it goes on. I mean, just in that one little detail, can you give us a little bit more flavor of what, your help, uh, what you help your customers achieve? Well, as you said, the paper industry consumes a tremendous amount of water. Um, in North America, for example, we have plentiful water supply and most paper mills are located close to large bodies of water, rivers, whatever. And uh, that's not true across the globe. And it's not true in more urban areas of, of North America. And what we are trying to do with the customers today is to basically put a recycling unit in where the water can run through the process, be captured, run through a recycling unit for lack of a better term where it's cleaned, conditioned, and can be returned back to the paper making process to help continue that. So while the process is using water, we want to limit the amount of effluent that leaves the system. So for us, it's all about containing the amount of water that's being consumed on the machine and being able to clean and make that water reusable in the process. At the same time, what little bit of effluent may go to a local municipality or whatever is in a condition where they can clean it quite easily and either return it back to the paper making customer or they can discharge it uh, into the river at a very at a very clean uh, content. So that, that's kind of the, 
the non-technical description of what's behind it, but it's a quite an intricate process, but one that our, uh, our, vo our voice uh, Mary division does an excellent job in this area. Walk us through uh, what that means in to a customer when they're able to recondition their water. Certainly that sustainability, we think of sustainability as a, uh, a public relations effect, like you're able to advertise that you're, you're reusing water, but it's way more than that. There's some, some financial impact. And to, to walk us through that, if you could, and so that people understand that this isn't just a uh, high-minded uh, sustainability goal. There's actually some dollars and cents in that. Yeah, I mean, sustainability gets a little bit of a bad rap of being a marketing campaign for a lot of companies, right? And I think when you, when you break it down into the production process, um, you know, producing a ton of paper requires water. That's, that's the process as it is today. And a paper sheet begins the process at the head box of being, you know, 2% fiber and 98% water. And somehow you have to remove all of that water from the sheet in order to get what you would use as a box at the end of the day, for, for an example. And in that process, you also have lots of uh, cleaning topics going on. So showers that are using water, you have all of these topics along the machine that are that are water that needs to be recaptured. And obviously that has a cost. So if you take a mill that's set up on a municipal with a municipality and they're not drawing water out of out of a river or whatever to to run their process, then that municipality has probably permitted them to have a certain amount of water every day to use for their process. So if they're limited in how much water they have availability to, then they're normally permitted to how much water they can also send back to the municipality. And obviously the municipality is going to have a certain size of what it can treat and do whatever it does with. So if the mill is the biggest consumer in the area and they're returning too much water, then the municipality can't handle all of the things that are going on in the community that it also has to take care of. So our system is to take a limited amount of water from the municipality and continue to reprocess that water so that the process so that the overall paper making process can continue from that reclaim and we're not continually pulling on the municipality nor are we overwhelming the municipality's capability to clarify and clean the water and return it back to the original source so that that's in a nutshell what it is um, Dollars and cents wise, it's probably not as inexpensive as pulling water directly from a large water source like a river or whatever. But but at the end of the day, it, it makes a lot more sense for the communities that these paper mills have to uh, coexist with that they're they're uh, responsible with the resources. Well, sure. I think uh, being able to recondition that water in house. Uh, probably ends up being lower total cost to the world than uh, taking that water and having a city treat all of it and then having to do something with it. You're, sure. you're having a lot more efficient. For sure. So when, when you are talking with me, you know, typically your business is with an established paper company 
and they've got a, a project that they, they want to implement, some improvement to their process or some expansion of capacity or something like that. And they'll come uh, out to a company like you and say, here's what we think we need. And I am on a tear about uh, companies that just have order takers walking in. So the customer already has researched. They know exactly what they want. They give a set of specs and two or three vendors just uh, compete on price, full stop. The other end of a spectrum is a customer comes to a vendor and saying, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. I have no idea how I'm gonna get there. Could you help me? And so uh, you bring in your engineering resources and you have a collaboration exercise. Uh, and so that's at the other end of a spectrum. And where do you, you know, how much of that spectrum do you operate in? And where do you like to operate? And where do you think your customers like to have VoIP operate with them? I think for the most part, our customers see us as an expert and they expect a certain level of technical expertise from us. And that can come in the form of the equipment we supply. It can also come in the form of the engineering support we supply. And it comes in the form of supporting them post purchase and, and commissioning and startup of the, of the equipment. So we're, we're along that whole value chain. And as I said before, we supply a tremendous number of the parts and pieces that the customer needs in order to make his operation work. Some of those are well-known, simple choices for the customer, and some of them can be extremely complex. So we have to, we have to basically cover that, that whole gamut when we're working with our customers. Let's say the more complex the purchase that the customer wants to make, the more we, at, we are involved from day one in helping form the specification that the customer will ultimately buy. And they depend on us to lend our experiences and our expertise to help them form those decisions, as you said earlier. Uh, those can be long processes, sometimes 12, 18, 24 months processes where we're discussing with engineering companies, we're discussing with the customer, we're having many, many meetings over what it is the customer wants, what it is we, they would like technically to be provided by us, and then us ultimately coming to a recommendation on what we think the customer should purchase in order to meet their end goals. Uh, some of the stuff is just day-to-day -day transactional business. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I feel like, you know, we, 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 we sort of covered the gamut. Um, we have smaller or medium-sized companies who don't have as much in-house expertise, and then they would depend on us quite a bit more to supply the supporting uh, area around the purchase. And then we have customers who have quite well-developed techno technological departments and technology groups that have a very good idea of what they want. They have a lot of experience in, in the marketplace and there we tend to support and lend some example of some of the things we do, current trends, things like that. But, but those companies, they normally have a very good idea of what they want to purchase. And then it's a matter of us meeting up with their expectation. Yeah. So uh, even on that end of the spectrum where the customer is pretty sophisticated, they buy it pretty frequently, they know exactly what they want because they've got a lot of experience buying it, a lot of technical expertise, knowing what to specify. Um, 
you're still there as an advisor to, to are you, are you, how much are you there to um, make sure you understand exactly what they're looking for and, and check their work? Or do you just kind of take it? Well, I think you have to be careful there. I mean, I don't think there's ever an exercise where we go in to check their work. We, yeah. we would definitely recommend what we propose for a specific solution. Um, sometimes that matches, sometimes it doesn't match. Um, but we understand our equipment very, very well. We design it for its particular applications. And, you know, there are times where it doesn't match. You know, customer has a certain expectation. Our equipment has a certain uh, deliverable and the two are not aligned. And uh, some leads to some interesting, maybe difficult conversations at times. But, uh, but, but the end outcome is the customer has a reason that they desire what they desire. And, and sometimes it doesn't match. Other times it's, it's a perfect fit. Yeah. Um, and other times what we supply could be over-designed. Uh, for the application, depending on, you know, what the customer's looking for. So it, it's a, it's, I think it's like anything, it's, it's a relationship. And then it's, it's an, a coming to a common understanding of what you want from what it is we sell versus what you're looking for as, as the, uh, as the end result. Yeah. I had a, I had another CEO, a good friend of mine who said, you know, customers don't un- want to always be right. That's why they have us. Yeah. I think it's a it's a combination of yeah. of of all of that in in our industry. I mean, we have yeah. all customers do what they do, do it very successfully, but they certainly approach the business in many different ways. Sure. So I'd like to move on to how you your sales force or your account management force. I think a lot of times, here's my perception. Tell me if I'm wrong. People tend to be a little bit risk averse. Is that something you run into? Well, I mean, the paper industry, as you describe, is a small industry. Um, it is uh, a small, tight-knit community, I would say. And most paper makers have either you know, worked one place or the other. Um, if they don't work out or they decide to leave one company, they usually show up back in the industry somewhere else. So the same guy you might know at company A um, may have worked at company B and eventually ends up at company C. I think that's the, yeah. the nature of the industry. Um, no, I would say that the industry in general is risk averse. I mean, it's a, it's a highly asset intensive business and, you know, it's not looked on and a lot of the bigger companies are, you know, stock market traded companies and investment in highly intensive asset businesses is not always looked on extremely favorably from, you know, a return on capital employed standpoint, which may be one of the metrics that the investors or stakeholders in the company are looking at. So yeah, I, I would say generally it's risk averse. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how much of that relates to the, the people that are within those businesses. As I said before, it's, it's quite a tight knit community of people and it's uh, you know, it's a very technically, um, uh, driven industry. So subject matter experts always have a home. So I don't know how much fear okay. there is of, of losing a job, but, uh, but for sure, the overall business is extremely risk averse. Okay. So tell me a little bit more about how you um, lead everybody at voice to make sure they really understand what the customer's underlying need is. There's 
a lot of times in one of these kind of industries, certainly you have to take uh, requirements and customers' needs then and reduce them down into a specification that gets delivered. And sometimes that specification is kind of like the single point of truth that both buyer and seller are are transacting or working to, to. But your customer knows the whole story behind why those specifications are, they are why they are. And sometimes your sales engineers and some of your customer facing people knows why those specifications are the way they are. But a lot of times I've found in some industries, you need to have everybody understand your customer's business to some level so that they can, they are free to understand why those specifications are, uh, what's, what's going on, how they can improve that customer's business, even if they aren't in day-to-day contact with a customer. Uh, that customer focus thing is says easy, but does hard. How do you, as a corporate leader, try to get everybody focused on your customers? Well, as you said, it, it is difficult and it's a big challenge. And of course, we have many different uh, areas of our business that are customer facing. And then we have areas of our business that are not as much customer facing. And the big challenge is to make sure that everybody sees at the end of the day that the customer is where we need to be focused, right? So if regardless if you're talking about finance, you're talking about purchasing, you're talking about engineering, you're talking about manufacturing, all of those areas that are executing what our customer facing people are bringing into our operations, keeping them singularly aligned with what the customer's end result is, 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 is critical to the success. And I think what, what we try to do is make sure that the order execution side of the business is in tune with what was sold. And that when, when that project is, is, is done, purchase order has been issued. There's a lot of communication then that goes on behind why, why the project was sold, what its intention is, what the importance of the different uh, ways that the customer would like to take the delivery of the project, et cetera, et cetera. That, that all plays into making sure that the execution side of the business is aligned, is as aligned as the the, uh, the sales side of the business, if that makes any sense. Oh, absolutely. They're in a fulfillment, installation, uh, turn up, commissioning, training, uh, project management. Every single one of those roles has to understand what, why this project was important to the customer to begin with, what they're trying to accomplish. Because there's a, a there's a death of a thousand cuts that if you if no if not everybody understands what the customer was trying to achieve. There's something that you do that uh, some practice that you have that tries to make sure that you keep all those loops closed. Yeah, I mean we have several things that we do within our business that uh, keeps those communication paths open and ensures that what we sold is what we're executing. So you talk about project management. I mean it's. I would say a majority of the time, a project manager is chosen for a project well before we ever get to the uh, to the end of the sales cycle, so the customer can become familiar with who they're going to be working with once they make that purchase. And it's a, it's a key can be a key component to to winning an opportunity uh, versus losing an opportunity when a customer is already fairly confident that they have somebody who's going to lead that project to to an end that they're already familiar with and know. Yeah. A friend of mine calls that selling like you're already doing business together. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important. 
Um, how about if we shift gears a little bit to um, some of the challenges you've had as a leader of a company uh, through a pandemic? Certainly your manufacturing folks have still had to come into work, but you've had especially some of your sales and customer facing folks had to work from home. Tell us a little bit about some of the challenges you've had and and what that means and and how you're trying to navigate the waters as as we think about coming out. I mean, maybe I'll start off with a little bit of a story. So we were on the way back from a convention, uh, flying home. And I remember uh, saying to one of the guys that was traveling with me, you know, this is probably one of the last times we're going to travel for a while, because I think it had, if I were, if I tied the times together, it had just been announced that there were positive cases in Seattle. There were possible possible positive cases that came out of a convention in Boston, and uh, all of, all of those things were going on as we were sitting in the uh, in the uh, airline lounge in Miami Airport. And I thought, wow, you know, this is this could be really something. And then you fast forward a couple of weeks. I think third week of March, we're sitting there having conversations as a leadership team that uh, we need to be getting prepared to get everybody home because we don't know how much longer we're going to be doing this. And of course, there were basketball tournaments being canceled, sporting events everywhere being canceled or 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 postponed at that point in time to to eventually be canceled. And you, you could see the writing on the wall, right? And then as cases continued to grow, we we basically said on a Wednesday, you know, by Friday, everybody needs to be home. Here's some rules around it. We were given quite a bit of autonomy and flexibility to make the right choices. And we made those. So that was a, a good thing. Um, I think from a from a professional standpoint, we had a great crisis management organization within Voice, and uh, we had our regional crisis management team. We were meeting almost daily and discussing what was happening. We were encouraging our leadership and managers to have uh, lots and lots and lots of conversation with folks at home to make sure they were engaged and being able to get set up to work. Uh, thank goodness for technology. I mean, where where would we have been if it if we'd still been on you know analog phone lines, wow. trying to yeah. conduct business over a fax machine that sat in a <laughs> in an office somewhere? You know, now with voice over IP, with cell phones, with Microsoft Teams, with all the different topics that we have, uh, we were able to handle it. And you know, I think that the biggest thing is the people that. People are, are uh, way more flexible and agile than we give them credit for. And, uh, and they did a super job. That's uh, so really something I, I, um, I look at in my own career. You know, I've always been a fairly uh, tough manager, I would say, uh, have big expectations of people and maybe didn't give people the credit that they deserve. And I think I learned a lot during the, the, the COVID crisis that people they deliver and our folks deliver and I couldn't be happier about that. Um, now it's time to, where are we in this whole thing? You know, and what are the, what are the next steps? Because if I look at the health of our business overall, I'd have to say we're, we're doing okay. And, uh, and I, I, I don't have any complaints. So what, what really is the big driver to say, Hey, let's, uh, let's all return to office and, um, work as we did pre-COVID, I, I don't see us returning to that. I think there's going to be some kind of hybrid that comes out of this thing that uh, we're not quite there yet. Yeah. It's, uh, 
this new variant and, and spikes in cases after Thanksgiving probably leads you to believe that we'll have spikes in cases after Christmas. And, uh, you know, that's just going to either put the fear in people or put the fear in the organizations of, you know, what, when do we, when do we make these calls to do these things? I, I, I'm not really sure. I'm completely uh, somewhere where, I, where, where we can make those decisions yet. But uh, I, again, I, I go back and say the people, absolutely incredible the way people uh, took that change and it happened so fast and, and a lot of unknowns and everything else. And despite all of that, uh, they did incredibly well in handling the business. Yeah. I'm, you know, I think back to about 30 years ago, I was at a convention and there was a speaker who was talking about the future of work. And he said that uh, knowledge workers, it, it used to be that knowledge happened on paper. And so you had to put your knowledge workers in an office together. So the papers could go around an information conveyor belt. And that's no longer going to be needed. So we aren't going to need offices. That was 30 years ago. And I think the world and, and nature shoved us into a position of saying, maybe it's a little more true. That guy was a little more right 30 years ago than we gave him credit for. And now we have to figure out what that means. I think there's, uh, you know, and I, I was a little bit remiss and I missed a part that, that, you know, we're very fortunate in our industry. We're considered essential, right? So the paper industry is essential and therefore suppliers to the industry are also seen as essential. And, you know, our number one job was out of all of the facilities we have in North America was to keep those critical employees, those essential employees healthy. And I saw going, going home with the office workers that aren't, you know, the day-to-day -day folks who are manufacturing the products that are needed was a good thing to keep them safe. And then also, you know, making sure that the uh, work area was, was sterilized to the point, and I don't mean physically sterilized, but sterilized to the point where, you know, our workers were safe, they could maintain safe distances, everything else. I mean, that, that was another critical part of our success during this is we didn't really have these breakout cases like some of the manufacturing that you saw in, in, in during that time. And, and again, that's uh, it's a credit to the people because a lot of people could have said, Hey, I don't really want to do that. I don't really want to be a part of that because there's all these unknowns, but our guys showed up and they, they, they made it happen. So that, that, that's really what, uh, you know, what we learned or what, it, what I take away from COVID anyway, I don't know that we all learned it is that uh, is that uh, people are extremely resilient and, uh, and they're capable to do things far beyond expectation. You know, it's, it's kind of a great benediction, a great way to end up that uh, this podcast that, you know, people really, if you give them permission and empower them, they can really exceed your expectations. And um, what a great way to end off. Is there anything else you want to say that tops that? No, I don't think so. Well, David, thank you very much for uh, joining us on this discussion. It was a real pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for joining us on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your customer's mind. So building value is a lot more like brain surgery than you would have thought. Thanks, and have a high-value day. Well, it ain't easy, because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. If you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying.
your dues Cause you'll be singing those old Don't know about you blue This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.